So you ever have a plan in place on something and you realized in the middle of that plan that it wasn't going how you thought it was going to go? Maybe your plan hits a pothole. Maybe you got sent on a detour or otherwise just put into unknown territory. It looks, you look around and it's like, this is not how I expected it to go. Maybe the circumstances get you reeling. They get you questioning everything around you. Maybe you've been eating healthy and yet you still get a bad diagnosis. Or you studied for a test and yet you still somehow failed it. In any of a hundred different situations, sometimes our best laid plans can get us questioning, can get us doubting, can put us in those times where we're just not sure. And fortunately, we can get really creative about where that leads us. Am I even capable of passing a test? Will I ever get the job? Does God even care about my situation? Or let's take it even a step further. Even if there is a God, forget it. I mean, forget this whole faith thing. It's just not worth it. I've been there, unfortunately, more, willing, more often than I've been willing to admit. But the good thing is, when God crafted the Bible, God didn't take stories like that out. I mean, here, one of David's prayers, and he usually would try and end his psalms on a message of hope or something like that. And he says in Psalm, uh, psalm 39, the last verse, verse 13, he says this, Turn your gaze away from me, speaking to the Lord, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now that's from the man after God's own heart, as he is called. Man of hardcore faith. One commentator said that the very presence of such prayers, such as what David just uh, writes and what I just read in the scripture, is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. And you know what? The same attitude comes out when Jesus walks the earth with his people. Back in Jesus' day, Jesus' own cousin, John, had an unshakable faith. If there was anybody who believed that Jesus was the real deal, it would have been John the Baptist. And everything about his ministry pointed to Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, and as eccentric as he was. John had a following. He had a million subscribers to his Lotus and Honey YouTube channel. Every post in the Crazy Prophet Facebook group got 100,000 shares on it. Yet you hear his attitude in John 3.30 when he says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. This guy was all in that Jesus was the awaited Messiah. And when he meets Jesus face to face for the first time in Matthew 3, I'm guessing a lot of images flooded into his mind. Ha! The Savior has come. That means Rome is going to get sacked. The Pharisees are going to get what's theirs. Justice is going to get meted out. And the poor, the blind, and the lame are going to rule the world. In fact, John the Baptist diverts all his students to Jesus probably banking on Jesus rolling out that very plan that I just described. And then John ends up in prison, never to get out. How did this turn of events go down? I mean, John's been faithful, no doubt. We see in Matthew chapter 3 through chapter 10, they're filled with displays of Jesus' power and wisdom. All tons of evidence to his identity as, yes, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. I'm guessing John didn't need front row seats for all that, 
but a prison cell? And from that dank, concrete, stone walls, we read John's most honest question. Out of Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, that go like this. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Are you the one who is to come, or are we supposed to wait for another? I bet John, for all those hours with nothing but his own brain for company, was like, what if I'd been wrong? What if, what made Jesus so, or what made John so sure that Jesus wasn't just another false prophet in Israel? Did he just send thousands of his own disciples, of his own followers astray? The stone walls around, they certainly didn't give him any comforting answers. With only his mind for company, he starts to doubt. You ever been there? Something in your, in your life that you're willing to bet the farm on, and then all of a sudden something happens and you're just you're not sure anymore. If you're a Christian, maybe you have even stifled this not-so-sure moment. You know, I won't make you smash the like button too hard if that's the case, but be honest with yourself. I mean, sadly, Christians have this sort of hate-hate relationship with doubt. We, we kind of default to demonizing people like Doubting Thomas that we read about after Jesus' resurrection. And we feel like we have to cancel John's honest question. Are you the one we're waiting for or do we wait for another? Like it somehow paints this bad image of this believing superhero. So let's see how Jesus himself responds in the next couple of verses, in verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Well, maybe not exactly the response we would expect from Jesus. Where's the, oh, you of little faith? Where's the, oh, not you too, John? Right, nowhere to be found. But what is found? Tell John what you see. All that evidence of Jesus' identity that's been playing out from chapters 3 through 10. And we just start off in this section in chapter 11. In fact, in the very next breath, Jesus compliments John. He says in verse 11, he says this, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. See, John was the real deal. And yet John himself asks questions. How can these two work together? Can a person have doubts and still believe? I want to make the case that doubts and questions are really an honest, an honest, finite person approach to an infinite topic. Because think about it this way. I mean, we all walk by faith, not, not by sight. On most things, you know, the concept isn't just a Christian thing because short of death and taxes, the only real sure things in this world, we're really all just playing odds on everything. If you can't rely on sight or think you can't rely on certainty, then it's sort of like walking through life with a blindfold on, for the sake of analogy at least. You can't see. So if you can't see, who would blame a blind person for asking directions. Nobody. That's basically what John is doing. 
he he is trying to live by faith and he asks Jesus for direction. Are you the one to, that we're waiting for or is there another yet to come? So let me universalize the idea a little bit. What's the opposite of doubt? Okay, I'd say certainty. Well, what's the opposite of faith? Not doubt, but certainty. And put it, put another way, the opposite of faith is I have it all figured out. I'm certain. If I know it, I don't need faith. Oh my. You mean there's a place where the faith, doubt, tension actually works together? One doubt forces the other, our faith, to grow. Author uh, Madeline Lengel says that the value of doubt is keeping you open to God's revelations. If you don't doubt, you don't change. If you have to have finite answers to infinite questions, you're not going to move. So, totally practically speaking, what do we do when the doubt creeps in? I mean, how do we handle it on Monday morning You know, when, when we think we got things figured out and all of a sudden some curveball comes in there and messes with us? I mean, this applies fairly universally. First off, don't beat yourself up if doubt starts to creep in, even on those things you feel so sure about. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your ability. Maybe even it's your faith. Don't let yourself tailspin because you're asking questions. I mean, here's a fact that, again, there's very little in life that has complete certainty to it. Death and taxes, that's about it. Again, everything else is just playing odds. But here's another thing. Let your doubts drive you deep. When you're facing doubt, ask yourself, how can I grow through this? Maybe even because of the wrestling with the doubt. And the note why I didn't say, I didn't say, where can I find the answer? Now, sometimes, yeah, there's, there's places or resources or whatever where we can find the answers, sure. But sometimes exploring the doubt and, and, and wrestling with it gives you the avenue to grow. And we strengthen the muscles that manage the tensions. And that often can take us further and develop us further than just getting the answers. You know, um, you hear of, of teachers maybe who will say, who will teach their students, um, they'll make them wrestle with a problem that they're trying to solve because when they finally get it, it they get it and, and it's going to stick with them rather than just here's the answer and, and it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. So hang on to that this week. Let your doubts drive you deep. I mean, consider this. If doubt isn't making us go all deer in headlights, which is usually what doubt will end up doing, how much more can we focus on experiencing real, abundant life? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for not dismissing us in those times when we doubt when we're not sure, when we, are, uh, when we realize the finiteness of our humanity. Help us have the courage to, to wrestle with that doubt and still to hang on to you, the one who, who never changes, that we can hang on to in those times when things around us seem uncertain. Thank you again for, the, for that blessing and that gift, we pray. Amen.